we're going to pick up um, in chapter 3, and we're going to really start delving into a lot of what John writes about, both in his Gospels and in his letters, the concept of love. If you remember in verse 10 of chapter 3 last week, John made a statement of truth. He described what defines children of the devil as being whoever does not practice righteousness. And then his final description of a child of the devil was whoever does not love his brother. In our passages today, John is going to begin to explore love for the brothers in more detail. And he's going to reveal that our love for our fellow Christians confirms that our faith is real. Um, he starts to try to develop and explore what brotherly love looks like in practice or looks like in action. It's not just something we talk about. It's something we should be exhibiting. Um, and this is not a new concept. John is, is writing here um, near the end of his life, um, near the end of the first century. But throughout the New Testament, you see faith and love tied together quite a bit. Um, Paul, in his writings, if you flip to Galatians 5, 6, ties it together when he's talking about how Christ has set us free, how he set us free from the slavery of sin, the slavery of the law. And in verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you flip over in 1 Timothy, when he's writing to, Tim to Timothy here, Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul even writes about the importance of faith being exhibited through love, love being an essential portion of faith. So let's begin this week. We're going to look at 1 John 3, 11 through 24. We're going to read 11 through 13 to start with. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So John's readers had heard the message. He, he says, you've heard this message from the beginning. Since the beginning of their relationship with Christ, since Christ was being taught, the message of love had been taught. And this should have been a message near the end of the first century that the church was extremely familiar with. Um, it was a cardinal principle of the Christian faith. It, John writes in his gospel in chapter 13, he says, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's Christ talking. And he's giving a new commandment and he's saying you have to love one another. And what makes it difficult is he says, you have to love one another like I loved you. And you are to love one another, you're to, and that's how people will know that you're my disciples. So in verse 12, he starts out by saying, in verse 11, he starts out by saying we should love one another. But as he gets into verse 12, he gives us a contrasting statement. He gives us Cain offered up as an example of what the children of God should avoid. And the message is that we are to love our brothers 
and not be as Cain, who he described as having hated his brother and who had murdered him. So because of his hatred and his murder, he is labeled as being of the evil one. So the opposite of love, what stands completely in contrast to love, is hate. Those who do righteousness and have love are of God. Those who do not do righteousness and harbor hatred are children of the devil. So he's further describing what he talked about in what we studied last week, the children of God and the children of the devil. And he's given us these contrasts. He's saying, God is love. If you show love, you're of God. Satan or the devil is hate and evil. If you show hate, then you are of the devil. So he continues to give us these contrasting statements. And the reason for Cain's hatred was because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So Cain resented Abel. Uh, he resented him because his offering was acceptable for God and because Cain's had been rejected. In fact, Abel is mentioned in the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews 11 as being faithful because he offered a, a sacrifice that was pleasing and acceptable to God. And so the author, using this example, which this example would have been known, should have been known very well <clears throat> to the church, I would think just like the story of Cain and Abel to us is very familiar, I would think even back then it would have probably been that much more familiar. Um, and he used this story um, to demonstrate the power of hate, to show the extent of evil that can happen when hate is stored up in our hearts. Um, and he tells us that one who hates his brother identifies himself as being in that same spirit of Cain and likewise demonstrates that his works are evil. Um, verse 13 demonstrates an attitude that has been present since the beginning of time, and that is the hatred of good by bad. Flip to John 15 and let's look at a passage there. John 15, we're going to look at verses um, 17 through 19. Um, let's actually, well, let's pick up with 17. This is Christ speaking. He says, These things I command you so that you will love another. Then he jumps into verse 18, and what he says is, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there has always been conflict between the world and the Christian because there was conflict between the world and Christ. And if we are of Christ, there's going to be that conflict projected down to us. So let's jump into verses 14 and 15 now. And John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we see him in these verses tying them back to what he's just said. He's just given us the, the, probably one of the earliest descriptions of hate that we read in the Bible and its final point of being leading to murder. And he goes on to build on that saying that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
So love of our brothers is what distinguishes between the children of God and the children of the devil. John tells us that we will know we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Throughout the New Testament, and we'll look at a couple of passages here, but throughout the New Testament, the images of life and death are often used in reference to good and bad. They make a distinction. Um, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a second with me. So it's Ephesians 2, and we are going to look at verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's freeze there for a second. He is describing what made them dead in their trespasses. So death here is seen with walking in the flesh, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of air, following the sons of disobedience, giving in to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and being children of wrath. That is what is the equivalent of death in this passage in Ephesians. Thankfully, verse 4 starts with the word but that's going to show us a contrast. In verse 4 he says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even though we were dead, we were evil, Christ in His grace... What He did for us raised us up and brought us to life. So that is a contrast very similar to what John's saying in verses 14 and 15. This is that contrast where we have passed out of death into life. And and Paul in Ephesians tells us how we've done that. Flip over to Colossians for just a second. Colossians chapter 2, just one verse there. But verse 13 says, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses..." And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So when we pass from the the care of the world, of of the devil, the lures of flesh-driven life, into the camp of Christ, through the grace of Christ, through the sacrifice that Christ made, we, we don't just go from evil to good, but we go from death to life. And this is the contrast that he's pointing out here. He says that we know we've passed out of death into life, and look at how we know. This is what John tells us. This is how we know that we've done it. We know because we love our brothers. So one of the proofs of us having passed from good to evil, from passing from death to life, is our love for our fellow brothers. and we've passed from death to life through Jesus. 1 John 5, 12, which we'll cover in about three weeks, says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Christ is the key for that transition. There's nothing we can do by ourselves to pass from 
death to life. Christ has done the work. We have to accept the work and obey Him. But that ability is there for us. So if we are in Jesus, we'll show brotherly love as the evidence of our new life. So if we want people to know that we are with Jesus, that's reflected in our lives by how we show love to one another. Loving the brethren is another marker that we have passed from death to life, and it gives us confidence in our salvation. So Christ told us in John 13, 35, that all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. So when the world looks at us, one of the main ways they're going to know that we are the disciples of Christ, that we are with Christ, and that Christ is with us, is through our love. We are representing Christ through our love. And the contrast of that is if we do not love, we abide in death. So love indicates life. Hate, which is the opposite of love, indicates death. And the absence of love is not the cause of the death, but it's the sign of it. So if we're lost, if we're truly dead in Christ, if we are dead to our sins, if we are dead because of our sins, the absence of love is not what caused that death, but it's a symptom of our death. It's a sign of our death. Because the cause of death, spiritual death, the cause of evil, is not having a relationship with Christ, being saved by His grace. Because Christ is what bridges us from, from being evil to good, from being dead to alive. And if we are alive in Christ, we have love in our heart. If we're dead, then we don't have love in our heart. And so John is giving us these contrasts. And the result of walking in darkness is hatred. The death is a spiritual death, which is a separation from God and all that is good. And John uses two phrases, whoever does not love and everyone who hates. He uses them back to back for emphasis, giving them similar meaning. In the absence of love, there's hate. There's no middle ground. Not loving is hating. Just as light and darkness and light and, and life and death are mutually exclusive, Love and hate are also. You cannot have one existing at the same time as the other because they are truly mutually exclusive. One is evil, one is good. John tells us that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And I think it's interesting the way it's phrased, both in the original language and how it's translated in our, in our Bibles today. He doesn't say that anyone who hates his brother... Um, has murdered, or that he's guilty of murder, or that God will hold him responsible for murder, but he exhibited the disposition and the characteristics of a murderer. He, he says that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Not that he's done it in the past, or that he's guilty of it, or that he's going to be held responsible, but he's talking about the characteristics, the heart, the character, the reason behind it. And the reason is he has hateful passions in his heart, he has murderous thoughts and intentions, and those thoughts and intentions, when hateful, if left to their ultimate end, can result in murder. I mean, I don't think Cain necessarily started out thinking, well, I'm going to go kill my brother. But once you get hate in your heart, once you get dissent, once you get um, the fires of anger going, uh, sometimes before you know it, you've burned the whole forest down. And 
it doesn't take a lot to go from hatred to something as murder. So John here is saying, if you have hate in your heart, you're a murderer. Um, murder is really just hate demonstrated in an overt act. And the reason our hate sometimes may not lead to the point of physical murder is just simply because of lack of opportunity or we're fear of punishment or we have no means for accomplishing it. But deep down, a lot of times, if we're honest, we have said, man, if I could get a hold of that dude, I'd kill him. And that type of heart is evil. It's wrong. It's the opposite of what God intends for us. It is not loving. It is not kind. It is not all of the fruits of the Spirit. It's the works of the flesh. So Jesus expounds on this topic in Matthew 5 and 21 and 22. He says, you've heard, it, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In this statement, Christ demonstrated that unnecessary anger and words of provocation are, are, are going to violate in spirit the command to do no murder since it can lead to it. You have the same passions in your heart that a murderer has when you hate when you are being vile, when you're being evil. Um, and that's why he ties this to the example of Cain in the previous verses to demonstrate the fruit of hate. Spiritual life and spiritual death cannot live together in the soul. You're either in one camp or the other. They're mutually exclusive. Just as light and darkness, just as life and death, just as right and wrong... Spiritual life, spiritual death are mutually exclusive. And the fruit that we show, whether it's love or hate, lets the world know where we lie. It lets God know where we lie. And we can use that as a litmus test for ourselves. In your mind, think, am I showing hate or love to my people around me? And you'll start to get an idea of where you are. Where hate is, there is death. Where there is death, there is no life. An eternal life is not in the heart of a murderer. From the previous verses, we see what defines this murderer. Verse 10, one who does not love his brother is not of God. Verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. They're frightening passages. He starts out in a passage that gives us hope that gives us a picture of what rightness looks like that we've passed from death to life because of the love we have for our brothers. But then he goes on to give us some pretty startling comments about what hate will do in our heart and how it will separate us. He then jumps into verse 16 and 18 and he starts to better define what he means by brotherly love. So he's told us that hate's wrong, it's the equivalent of murder, that it will lead to spiritual death. Now he starts giving us the recipe for how we come to Christ, what we look like loving our brothers. So in verses 16 through 18, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John, in contrast to the hatred that he's talked about in the end of verses 14 and in verse 15, starts to give us a detailed and complete description of love. And he gives us the best example of love that he can give. He says, because of his love, Christ laid down his life for us, that he gave his life for us. Um, John 10, the Gospel of John 10, in verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Christ talking. And in verses 17 and 18, Christ says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. The reason we know love, the reason there is love, what defines love, is that we have seen it exhibited in Christ. That's why we have become acquainted with love. He laid down His life for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We know what John 3.16 says, why, that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. We know in Romans 5.18 it says, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. In view of what Christ has done for us, in view of the love of Christ, the love He's shown us, the love that God has given us, John's saying in, in, in this epistle that we ought to be willing to do the same for our brothers. And that's a stark contrast. I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a tough command because we've just seen Christ gave His life for us. But Christ's death was the greatest possible proof of love. And if we are to imitate Christ, which we're supposed to, we should be willing to go to that same extreme in demonstrating our love. In fact, Christ commands it. In John 15, verses 12 and 13, Christ says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Some translations for his brothers. The type of love that Christ commands of us, the type of love that God expects of us, is a sacrificial love. I don't think there's a lot of times in our life where we're going to be faced with giving our life for someone that is our brother or sister in Christ. I hope there's not. I think, who knows? I mean, the world's crazy. But I hope and pray that we never are faced with that decision. But Christ says, if you love your brothers, you're willing to do this. And then as you think about who's sitting in here with you, you start looking around and you're like, well, maybe. Hmm, I might give my life for that one. And Now Christ says, if you love your brothers, you're willing to give your life. And this is a litmus test for the love that's in your heart. And the love that's in your heart is defining, defining are you with Christ or are you with the evil one? And that's scary because I'm a selfish person. I kind of like life. And I like a lot of you, but I like me a little bit more. 
And when you've got that type of attitude in your heart, it gets a little bit scary when you read these passages because what he's asking of us is to be willing to give up everything out of love for one another. And folks, if we do that, man, the work we could get done. But we don't, and I don't. I mean, I'm preaching out of my hip pocket here because this one hurts. It steps on our toes because we don't do this. We want to know why we don't grow. We want to know why we have problems. We want to know why we disagree about things and we sometimes have tiffs and don't get along. It's because we're not sacrificial in how we love. Because we're not willing to put others before us. Because we're not willing to get to the point of laying our life down for somebody else. So this willingness to sacrificially give one's life for the, the other, it's the essence of true love. So John then, he, he moves from defining this is true love to the responsibility we have towards one another beyond that. Um, He says, if we're willing to give up our life for our brothers, then it makes sense that we need to be willing to help our brothers when they're in need. And he demonstrates in this verse that the neglect of our brother's needs, if we have the ability to help, shows that the love of God does not abide in us. Wow. You think the thought of giving up your life for somebody steps on your toes. I mean, we're, we may never be faced with that. But then he says... One of the things that defines the love of Christ in you is your willingness to help one of your brothers when you see they're in need and you have the needs to help. Now that ought to step on toes. Steps on my toes. I think John put it in there to step on everybody's toes. But that's the type of love we're supposed to have. He demonstrates in this verse that the neglect of a brother's needs if we have the ability to help shows the love of God is not abiding in us. The question that John asks is a rhetorical, the answer being that God's love doesn't abide in him if you are neglecting your brother's needs. The love of God is not God's love for us when he says that. So he says it in verse, uh, let me get back over there. He says it in verse, He says it in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question there. Um, when he says the phrase, God's love or the love of God, how does it abide in him? He's not talking about God's love for us. God loves us no matter what. God loves us when we're in our sin. He doesn't like us, but He loves us because we know that because He sent Christ to die for us while we were sinners. But the love of God He's talking about here is the love we have in our heart for Him because it's out of our love for God, it's out of our love for Christ that we love our brothers. That's where that commandment comes from. That's the purpose we do that because if we love God, we love our brothers and we're willing to sacrifice for them. And, and the command to help our brothers is something that is also familiar throughout the New Testament. You see it in John's letters. You see it in Paul's letters. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are out of the household of faith. Uh, James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So John, as he first defines love as being Christ loved us, Christ died for us, 
we should show that same type of love, that willingness to show sacrificial love for our brothers. He goes on to say, now we need to be putting our love in action. And you may never be faced with laying your life down for your brother, but you will be faced with the opportunity to help someone that's your brother or sister that's in need. And how do we demonstrate our love? We do it by putting it in action. And that's why he says at the end of that passage, um, to, to do, um, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He's telling us that our words really don't mean a lot, but our actions mean everything. To let our love be shown through our actions. Love is not just a word. Love is not just something you say to somebody just to make them feel good. Love is an action. If you love someone, you'll do anything to help them. If you love them like you love yourself, you'll go out of your way to give them comfort and peace and support. Sometimes it means that you'll hold them accountable, that you'll call them out for something that you see wrong in their life. But love is an active thing. It's not a spoken thing. It's an active thing. Just as Christ actively gave up his kingship in heaven, he's still the king, but he humbled himself to become a man and he went and he died for us. That was a very, very active love. And that's the kind of love that we're required and asked to show everybody else. So as we close out, let's go to verses 19 through 24. And let's, let's talk about this last chunk of, of Scripture here. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So he starts out this passage by using the phrase, by this. So he's making reference back to the previous statements he's made, talking about what has just been said, that we're able to know that we are of the truth, that because of what he's just said, we're able to reassure our hearts before him, that if our love is not merely in word or tongue, but in active love that's fulfilled through our actions, then we shall know that we are of the truth and have assurance before God. The knowledge of the reality of the love which we possess for one another enables us to quiet the fears that arise in our own hearts about our own deficiencies in our life. Because folks, we sin. We sin all the time. Sometimes we don't even realize it. So we are often daily in need of coming back to Christ. And that conscience, that guilt that we feel of our sin eats away at us. Well, one of the things that helps to soften that consciousness of guilt is number one, knowing that Christ loved us so much that He came and laid down His life for us. And that if we exhibit the love of Christ in our lives, then we abide with God. 
that we're abiding with God. And that is a comforting thing to know because we struggle. And when we struggle, we're bad to get down on ourselves. We're bad to feel guilty about what we're doing. But take the litmus test. Am I helping? Am I asking for forgiveness from God? Am I showing love to the brothers? Is my heart in the right place? If you can answer those questions, yes, I'm asking forgiveness, I'm right with God, is my heart in the right place, am I showing love for others? Well, then you start to have more confidence before God. And that's what he's talking about in this passage. Because he says by this, talking about what he's just said in the last few verses, we know that we are of the truth and we reassure our heart before him. And this, this passage when he says... For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Wow, what a blessed statement. You don't find a better statement. In verse 20, He lets us know that if we feel insufficient based on our inward thoughts and our heart, suffering the uneasiness that comes from a recognition of our own weaknesses and our consciousness of our own imperfections, that God is greater than our heart. Wow, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. He knows all things. He will deal with us not according to our conscience, not according to how we feel about ourselves, not according to how we beat ourselves up sometimes, but He will judge us in harmony with His eternal and unchanging principles of right. He will judge us by love. He will show us grace. He will show us mercy. Now, we have our part to do. We have to be faithful. We have to show love. We have to be in Christ. But what a comfort it is to know that when we're battling our own guilty situations, that God, knowing all things, knows us better than ourselves, than we know ourselves, and will deal with us accordingly. That He knows our heart. That he is, he, He's not going to deal with us according to what we feel about ourselves and what we think about ourselves, um, that He's going to deal with us based on what He knows is in our heart. And we must strive daily to conform to His righteousness, demonstrating our love for Him by loving others. That's how we'll be judged. We have to strive to walk in the light, to walk in truth, to walk in obedience, and walk in love. And when we mess up, and we feel horrible about it, and we're ashamed. You know, shame didn't come into the world. When God created the world, there was no shame. There was no reason to be ashamed of anything. Oh, that would have been a wonderful place to live, right? We all feel shame about things in our lives. We all feel ashamed about things in our life. When God created the world, He put Adam and Eve here, and there was no shame. Well, Satan played word games they partook of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil, the fruit of good and evil, knowledge and good and evil. And instantly they were ashamed. They gained knowledge, they sinned, and shame entered the world. That's why they went and tried to cover themselves when God came walking through the garden. Can you imagine being in a place with no shame, no problems? God strolls through the garden and is talking to you. And you make one mistake, and instantly you're ashamed, and you're hiding from God as He walks through the garden. Well, ever since that act, shame entered the world, and we all feel shame in our hearts. A lot of us don't think we're good enough, that we could never be good enough for God to love us. Well, God loves us anyway. 
But this passage is one of the most comforting passages in the Bible to me because of what it says. Because it says that whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. And one day, Lord willing, we'll all be in a place where there's no shame again. Because that's what God intended. And God knows our heart and He's going to work to get us through what we are facing. And He's going to judge us not by how we feel about ourselves, but by what's in our heart from a loving standpoint and our love for Him. So if keeping to His Word, in keeping to His Word, our assurance is well grounded in that the Father is attentive to our prayers and bestows upon us whatever um, we ask. So the assurance given to us in verse 20 is that we have assurance of the heart that we'll have greater confidence in the fellowship that is ours. Um, if our conscience is clean before God and if we've lived in fellowship with His commandments, then we should have confidence before Him. If we are showing love, if we're exhibiting love, if we're living in Christ, then we can be confident before the Father. We don't have to fear because God's promise is very, very true. Um, and this does not necessarily mean when he says in verse, um, when he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive for him, from Him because we keep His commandment and do what He pleases. He's not giving us in that statement, He's not giving us carte blanche for prayer. He's not saying that you can go out and ask for a new car and poof, the car shows up. But He's saying that if we're faithful if we have the love of Christ in our heart, if we're obedient, if we abide in Him, that He's listening to our prayers and that He will give us what we need. And the promise of this passage must be understood within the limitations of His promises regarding prayer. We taught a class in here a couple of quarters ago on prayer. That prayer must be in faith, in confidence, according to His will, in keeping with His instructions regarding prayer. And then He will answer as we need, not as we want, but as He sees fit, as is aligned with His will. So John then wraps up by giving us a summary statement in a commandment. Let's read that last piece of this passage. Um, it's verse 23 and 24. Um, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His, commandment, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So John starts to summarize what he's been talking about us. And notice the commandment is singular yet it sums up the duties that we are to do. Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And wrapped up in that belief is obedience, is love, is humility, is forgiveness, are all the things that He requires. You know, if you don't believe in God, you don't have to worry about baptism. You don't have to worry about repentance. But if you believe that Christ is who He said He is, then every commandment the man made 
is essential. And you have to believe in the, the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then along with that, of equal importance, is you have to love one another. And I think we all do a good job of believing in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we do a pretty good job of following His commandments and being obedient. What really cuts our legs out a lot of times is how we show love. Because it's easy to say, I obey Christ. It's easy to be faithful, read your Bible, pray, have a pure heart. What's hard is loving people. Because people are hard to love. I deal with people all day long, all week long. People are hard to love. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that we share this wonderful church with are hard to love sometimes. They drive us crazy. It's just like a family. There's times my kids drive me absolutely crazy. But I love them to death and I do anything for them. And that's how we have to be with our brothers and sisters. So we have to obey Christ. We have to believe in His name. And we've got to love one another. It's impossible to separate faith and action. You can't say, well, I'm a faithful Christian. I love Christ, but I hate His people. It doesn't jive that way. You cannot be that way. You've got to love Christ and you've got to love one another. And if you can't do that, then do some soul searching and figure out how you can do that. Because the ones that love Christ, that believe in His name and love one another, those are the ones who are going to be abiding in the Father and the Father abiding in them. And that's an essential thing to our lives. Um, John closes this section by making reference to the Lord's own words. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He, he says that in John, Christ says that in John 14, 23. So if we keep his commands, if we love one another, we are in fellowship with the Father and the Son. And the closing phrase of verse 24 declares that God will abide in us, that we have knowledge of His abiding presence, and we have that knowledge because we have this litmus test to compare ourselves against. And then we possess this knowledge also by the Spirit which He has given us. We all receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. I don't exactly understand how it works, but I do believe it lives within us, that God gives us as a gift and part of that gift of the Holy Spirit is that it's there to help assure us that God is abiding in us if we're abiding in Him. And that should give us comfort. So next week we'll jump into chapter 4. We'll take a quick respite talking about love. We'll talk about testing the spirits. And then we'll jump back into love. But we'll shift gears of talking a little less about how we love one another but how God loves us. Um, but uh, thank you for your attention this morning. That's all I have.